This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. With apologies for the slightly croaky voice, I'd say it's good to be back. We have taken the summer off here at Radio Parallax, but it's now post-Labor Day. We are approaching the autumnal equinox, and by God, it's fall, and it's time to get back to work. I thought a good way to get back on the saddle and uh, avoid the rut we may have fallen into just a bit of being a show dealing with current events. Well, we can avoid that today, in part, by perhaps starting out with our old friend, Uncle John, from the Bathroom Reader series. He had one volume out called Colossal Collection of Quotable Quotes. By God, it is chock full of some good ones. And I think we'll uh, start today's show with a few. I think we would do well to quote from that great philosopher, Burt Reynolds, who once said, There are two things I've learned in life. You should never race a guy named Flash and never bring a girl named Bubbles home to meet your mother. Both of which I've done, by the way. Gotta say, we liked his auto-bio and are a bit sorry that we never managed to book Mr. Reynolds for this program. Let's move on to try some quotes on quotes. For instance, Winston Churchill once said, It is a good thing for an uneducated man to read books of quotations. We would have to disagree with the former prime minister and note that it's probably a good thing for all people to read books of quotations. W. Somerset Mom once noted that the ability to quote is a serviceable substitute for wit. And a quote-unquote that we're quite certain Donald Trump would embrace comes from Tom Stoppard. And it is that it is better to be quotable than honest. Quotes are tricky. We do admire Winston Burdett, who once said, I don't want to be quoted. And don't quote that I don't want to be quoted. And when it comes to speaking the truth, we have the following. First off from H.H. Monroe, better known as Saki. A little inaccuracy sometimes saves tons of explanation. Words we frequently try to live by here on this program, as much as we do try to be accurate. Mark Twain once said, truth is stranger than fiction, but it is because fiction is obliged to stick to possibilities. Truth isn't. And from Elizabeth Bowen, nobody speaks the truth when there is something they must have. Here's one we definitely like. Uncle John's attributes it to Anonymous. We thought it came from Robert Benchley. At any rate, the quote is, there are two types of people, those who divide people into two types and those who don't. And one we're pretty sure we don't like. It's an old military saying, which is that artillerymen believe the world consists of two types of people, other artillerymen and targets. And here's three that didn't come from the Uncle John's colossal collection of quotable quotes. Humorous Fran Lebowitz is on record as saying, People always say revenge is a dish best served cold. No, it's good anytime you can get it. And supposedly the writer Francois de la Rochefoucauld once said, Old men delight in giving good advice as a consolation for the fact that they can no longer set bad examples. And from philosopher Karl Popper, he once said, The simple truth is, the truth is hard to come by, 
and that once found, it may easily be lost again. Let's close with three that we like very much. This is an alleged exchange between a young writer and J.M. Barry. Young writer, I don't know what title to give my book. J.M. Barry, are there any trumpets in it? Young writer, no. J.M. Barry, are there any drums in it? Young writer, no. J.M. Barry, why not call it without drums or trumpets? And then there's the immortal Samuel Johnson's comments on a manuscript submitted to him. He responded with, your manuscript is both good and original, but the part that is good is not original, and the part that is original is not good. And finally from Jay Leno, who one time asked, how come aspirins are packed in childproof containers, but bullets just come in a box? That's enough quotes to start, I think. We're going to try and keep things on the lighter side today, for the most part. So let's go into a a rich vein of humor provided by Calvin Trillin. This comes from a recent edition of The New Yorker, the Shouts and Murmurs section. Trillin titled it Class Notes, and in a good imitation of the Class Notes sections one finds in alumni publications, we have the following. There's Bokub news this month about the class of 1993, topped by the happy tidings that Jack Beckerston, known to most of us as the Bexter, has finally been transferred from the United States Penitentiary in Atlanta to the less rigid Federal Correction Institution near Mariana, Georgia, which he describes as more comfortable than his freshman dorm. The new digs are an easy drive from the Gulf Coast, and the Bexter invites any 93ers traveling that area to drop by. Visitor regulations and hours are available at fedcorrection.gov. Ever the jokester, he has maintained that what he refers to as the so-called Ponzi scheme was a prank. Jack added a PS to his letter, which reads, No hacksaws, please. We have what may be a first this month, the first example of one 93-er firing another. Tom Weber, who worked in as assistant sales manager for Gilbert and Parsons One Coat Paint, was axed by Gilbert and Parsons CEO Pam Hawkinson, who writes that she should have known better than to hire the man who, at the not-the-class-day hijinks on the eve before our actual class day, was given the award for graduating with the most pages of a sign reading left unread, adding, he has the get-up-and-go of a tree stump. Tom, who's considering a wrongful termination suit under the Civil Rights Act, writes that the working conditions at Gilbert and Parsons compared unfavorably with those of the Gulag and included the mandatory singing each morning of the Gilbert and Parsons song. More than just a single coat is what we ain't because we're Gilbert and Parsons one coat paint, a requirement he calls demeaning, not to mention consistently off-key. And, notes Calvin Trillin in the class notes section, an email from Kimberly Connolly carries the disappointing news that her latest door-to-door beauty product, a cream for fighting cellulite called Cell No More, attracted the attention of the Food and Drug Administration and, quote, not in a pleasant way, unquote. When all was said and done, Kimberly had to file for bankruptcy, her fourth. She plans to start again with a different cellulite-fighting formula, but with the same motto, keep those dimples on your face where they belong. Investors welcome as usual. And lastly, from Alabama, Jack McPherson writes that he's now been divorced five times. We're calling that a class record until we hear otherwise. Funny man, that Calvin Trillin. 
All right, since we're starting out light and, and hopefully funny, we might do well to hit our backlog of good, bad, and ugly, which in general come to us courtesy of the Good Week 4, Bad Week 4 section of The Week magazine. We've got quite a backlog to work with, so let's, let's use The Week, shall we? All right, since we have many weeks worth of material to uh, to work with, I think I'm just going to say it was apparently a good, bad, or ugly summer for, based on some of these entries. I think we have time to do three sets of them today. All right, good, bad, and ugly set number one. According to the week, it was a good week this summer for wealthy U.S. parents who are hiring screen consultants to help them wean children off digital devices. The consultants are paid up to $250 per hour to teach parents how to fill the digital void in their offspring's lives. Consultant Rhonda Moskowitz said she advises parents, throw the ball, kick the ball. All right, apparently it was a bad summer for automation. With an inspector general's report that a supposedly self-cleaning toilet in the Washington, D.C. metro system required more than $500,000 in maintenance over 14 years and nonetheless has been out of service since the fall of 2017. And evidently it was an ugly summer this summer for noble gestures with the word that an Arizona man who donated his late mother's body for medical research was horrified to learn it was actually used for military blast testing. Jim Stoffer, one of dozens of plaintiffs suing Biological Resource Center, says he's learned that his mom's body was strapped into a chair and a detonation took place underneath her to study the impact of bombs on flesh. All right, round two. It was apparently a good summer this summer for tweeting truth to power when a federal appeals court ruled that President Trump violated the First Amendment rights of critics, which he blocked on Twitter. Trump's Twitter account is one of the White House's main vehicles for conducting official business, the court ruled, so he can't limit that public forum to supporters. And speaking of President Trump, it was a bad summer for him when his sterling reputation for honesty took a rare ding, according to The Week, when mere days after he claimed to be a really good speller, photographers captured a sheaf of paper notes on which Trump, in handwritten capitals, had rendered the word people P-E-O-P-E-L, and the names of a well-known terrorist group, Al-Qaeda, as A-L-C-A-I-D-A, one word. And it was surely a bad summer for racial equality, with the news that the organizers of the Afro Future Fest music festival in Detroit had to grudgingly reverse their plan to charge white people twice as much as black people. The festival had advertised an early bird POC, people of color ticket, for $10, while the early bird non-POC ticket went for $20. After objections from both customers and performers, organizers scrapped the two-tier pricing but said that non-POC individuals are encouraged to provide additional donations. 
And it was evidently a good summer this last summer for greased piglets, which will no longer be wrestled for entertainment by children at the Sonoma County Fair here in California. Fair officials cited, quoted, raised awareness, unquote, of animal rights and announced that children will henceforth wrestle greased watermelons. Mr. McMillan says he's going to research any reaction from the American Watermelon Association about this particular change. After all, isn't that demeaning to the watermelons as well? And this summer, it was a bad summer for both sides-ism, with the news that a Florida public high school principal was removed after he wrote a parent that it would be wrong to teach pupils about the Holocaust when, quote, not everyone believes the Holocaust happened, unquote. And we'd have to say that it turned out to be kind of an ugly summer for Iowa Human Services Director Jerry Foxhoven. He was forced to resign his position, allegedly because Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds tired of Foxhoven's obsession with the slain rapper Tupac Shakur. Foxhoven, 66, routinely emailed Shakur's lyrics to his 4,300 employees and hosted weekly Tupac Fridays in his office. And let's throw in one final item that some people might think is good, but we think it's mostly bad, if not ugly. The word is that Michigan State University is advising employees to avoid saying no problem to customers. In a presentation called Inclusive and Culturally Sensitive Services, an MSU official said that no problem is a trigger that could lead a customer to believe that they could be a problem. It's more calming, the official said, to say, you're welcome. Now, Radio Parallax does take the editorial position here that you're welcome probably is preferable to no problem. On the other hand, neither myself nor Mr. McMillan feel that it is a trigger that could lead us to believe that we could be a problem. And if somebody feels differently about that, all I got to say is, what's your problem? All right, moving right along, we do have another item that probably does belong somewhere in the good, bad, and ugly department. But we're going to report it as straight news. According to the East Bay Times, article by Patrick May and Ali Teadon, well, they start out as following. Building upon its rich and at times head-scratching legacy of being one of America's deepest pockets of progressivism, Berkeley's leaders plan to get rid of every speck of gendered language they can find in their government playbook. And they're starting with, you guessed it, manholes. After the city council unanimously approved the first reading of the new ordinance Tuesday, this is some weeks back, Berkeley could also soon replace any reference to he or she in the civil code with they, part of the city's campaign to reorganize its non-binary residents. The effort was led by city council member Rigel Robinson, who in his proposal to change the code said, Broadening societal awareness of transgender and gender nonconforming identities has brought to light the importance of non-binary gender inclusivity. It is both timely and necessary to make the environment of City Hall and the language of city legislation consistent with the principles of inclusion. Well, I'm not going to say too much more about that, but I do note that back in the 1970s, good old Berkeley was way ahead of this curve, as reported by no less than the esteemed Herb Cain in his celebrated column. The Berkeley Cowell 
Health Center manual on birth control contained the following. Condoms. A condom is a sheath of rubber that fits over the end of a person's penis. We're just going to let that one stand. Although, to be honest, this does offer the opportunity to play a piece of music that we, we just can't get enough of. All right, since we've introduced a bit of music to the program, as we like to do, let's, let's, let's do a little more of that. We have an appropriate song for what's going to follow. I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal you. I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal you. You know you've done me wrong. You stole my wife and gone. I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal you. Talk about him, Jordan. Talk about him. I'm going to kill you just for fun, you rascal. I do want to do a callback at this point to quotes, which we started today's program with. I believe it was Mark Twain, or perhaps Wilson Misner, I'm not sure which, who once said, I've never killed a man but I've read many obituaries with pleasure. So it is, we note the passing of that rascal, Robert Mugabe. Mugabe did lead the rebellion that toppled the white rule of then Rhodesia, which in theory then turned it into a multi-party state with naturally black majority rule. Unfortunately, what Zimbabwe morphed into was a somewhat benign dictatorship run by Marxist Mugabe and his ZANU party cronies. Something like 15 years ago, they announced that uh, as part of a uh, redistribution program, they were going to take farms away from Zimbabwe's white citizens, many of whom had been living there for centuries, and turn those lands over to black citizens of Zimbabwe, who pretty much in every case turned out to be Mugabe's cronies. As a result, Zimbabwe went from being the breadbasket of southern Africa to a country racked with mind-numbing inflation. I have in my collection of banknotes a trillion-dollar Zimbabwe note that someone brought back for me. If you're listening to this program during the first decade of uh, this millennium, and we hope you were, you no doubt noted that we took many a pot shot at Robert Mugabe, mainly because we were frustrated by the fact that he was ruining his beautiful country, and phonying up election after election to retain power. It was a sad state of affairs, looking at world politics back in, in that era of the years 2000 on. I mean, first the American Republican Party would steal an election, then the Zimbabwe and ZANU Party would steal one in turn, then the Republicans in America would steal another one, and then in Zimbabwe they would, you know, do the same. It got to be pretty tiresome, frankly. Unfortunately for these citizens of Zimbabwe, Mugabe was deposed a couple of years back. And the country is currently being run into the ground by Emerson Mongagwa, who naturally took office promising democratic and economic reforms, but instead has followed the impressive and regressive policies of his predecessor, Hundreds of Zimbabweans have been charged with treason for such non-criminal acts as joining a union. Blackouts are frequent, and long drivers' waits for hours in line for gas. 
Half of the capital of Harare has running water only once a week. The UN World Food the UN World Food Program said this summer that 5 million people in Zimbabwe, a third of the population, are at risk of starvation. And to quote from the economist, what I just said, the country was the region's breadbasket until the government began stealing farms and handing them to ruling party cronies, who had no interest in running farms, by the way. Anyway, we're pretty sure Robert Mugabe is burning in hell as we speak. Which, Mr. Merlin, might invite a little contribution to the program from the Squirrel Nut Zippers. And since we are talking about burning in hell, we probably should also mention the passing recently of David Koch. But you know what? Let's do a nice obituary. We're trying to keep things on the sunny side today. Let's instead do the obituary of Bob Fletcher, who passed away at 101 this summer. The LA Times noted that Bob Fletcher, who quit his job as state agricultural inspector during World War II to save the Sacramento farms of interned Japanese-American families, died last May in Sacramento. A few months after the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor, the U.S. government forced Japanese immigrants and Americans of Japanese descent to report to barbed wire camps in 1942. Many lost their homes to thieves or bank foreclosures. In the face of deep anti-Japanese sentiment, Fletcher was taunted as a Jap lover and nearly hit by a bullet fired at a barn. He stepped in to save the farms of the Nita, Okamoto, and Tsukamoto families. Bob Fletcher worked 90 acres of California table grapes, paid the mortgages and taxes, and took, and took half the profits. He turned over the rest, along with the farms, to the three families when they returned to Sacramento in 1945. Fletcher told the Sacramento Bee in 2010, I did know a few of them pretty well and never agreed with the evacuation. They were the same as anybody else. It was obvious they had nothing to do with Pearl Harbor. His inspirational story is recounted in history books, including We the People, a story of internment in America by Elizabeth Pinkerton and Mary Sukamoto, whose family farm he saved. Said Sukamoto's daughter, Few people in history exemplify the best ideals the way that Bob did. Daughter Marielle was just five when the family was interned. She said Bob was honest and hardworking and had integrity. Whenever you asked him about it, he just said, it was the right thing to do. Bob Fletcher earned an agricultural degree from UC Davis in 1933. He managed a peach ranch and worked as a state and Sacramento County agricultural inspector during the Great Depression. After the war, he bought a ranch in Sacramento and raised cattle. He spent 20 years as a volunteer firefighter with a local fire department and retired in 1974. In good health until recently, Fletcher never smoked or drank alcohol, said his brother-in-law. A reserved man of simple tastes, Fletcher drank more than a quart of milk a day and enjoyed spending time with his wife or working. Said Rick Martinez, former Sacramento fire chief, he never stopped working hard. He was a true public servant. We would note that Fletcher survived by his wife of 67 years, Teresa of Sacramento, son Robert Fletcher III of Idaho, three granddaughters and five great-grandchildren. We're happy to uh, focus on that rather than David Koch. 
In fact, we're going to put off talking about David Koch till next week's program. And here's an item that is just it's such a radio parallax kind of item that we just, we just well, we're going to have to talk about it. This comes from the Law of Unforeseen Consequences, <laughs> if we had such a department. But according to the Associated Press, Donald Trump's tariffs against China might cause a Bible shortage, according to publishers. Dateline Nashville, Tennessee. Religious publishers say President Donald Trump's most recent proposed tariffs on Chinese imports could result in a Bible shortage. That's because millions of Bibles, some estimate 150 million or more, are printed in China each year. Critics of a proposed tariff say it would make the Bible more expensive for consumers and hurt the evangelism efforts to Christian organizations that give away Bibles as part of their ministry. Now, the article admits that the full size of this market for Bibles is difficult to gauge. A spokesman at HarperCollins said they believe about 20 million Bibles are sold in the U.S. each year. The NDP group, which includes NDP BookScan and PubTracks Digital, captured 5.7 million print Bible sales in the U.S. in 2018, but that figure doesn't capture all sales, including the large number of Bibles sold by publishers directly to congregations. Regardless, the Bible is the top-selling book in the U.S. By comparison, the next bestseller back in 2018 was Michelle Obama's Becoming, which BookScan estimates sold 3.5 million copies. All right, uh, during our summer recess, yours truly made an effort on a couple of occasions to do some swimming, some open water swimming, but discovered that in the Bay Area, the majority, it seems, of swimming holes are uh, closed because of the supposed dire threat of toxic algae. Well, now, according to the New York Times, blue-green algae, known as cyanobacteria, multiplies in fresh water when the weather's warm and the water is stagnant or gets contaminated with fertilizer runoff or sewage. Once exposed to the bacteria, which can lurk below the surface and be hard to spot, it's noted that dogs rarely survive. I, I really have problems with this. Dogs rarely survive. The blooms release toxins that can cause liver damage and respiratory paralysis. According to a veterinarian, Val Beasley, veterinary professor at Penn State University, well, she told the Times, a lot of times the neurotoxins will kill the animal before they can get to the veterinarian. The algae can also cause ailments in people, but dogs are more susceptible because they tend to gulp down water and, I suppose, lick their fur, which is full of algae. This issue gained attention during the summer when three dogs belonging to a Wilmington, North Carolina couple died within hours of taking a dip in a pond. In recent weeks, family pets also died of cyanobacteria poisoning in Austin, Marietta, Georgia, and what's described as elsewhere. Dog owners are advised to steer their pooches clear of water that smells bad or has an odd color. But you know, does this mean people can't enter water contaminated supposedly with cyanobacteria? Anyway, we're going to research this one. Stay tuned. We are skeptical. Which reminds me of what I believe Niels Bohr once had to say about astrology, which was that he didn't believe in it, but he noted that he was a Sagittarius, and of course they're very skeptical. And in other news related to uh, humans and their pets, we, we have this. A Pennsylvania man has won approval from his doctor 
to use an alligator as an emotional support animal. Joy Haney, age 65, said Wally is, quote, just like a dog, unquote, and wants to be loved and petted. Since Wally helps lift his depression, Haney said, his doctor figured, why not? So now the two go shopping together and pay visits to local nursing homes to cheer up residents. <laughs> no, no word on the residents' reaction to the alligator. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.